We are Tim and Michelle Hill with Connect Over Coffee, and this is Midlife Realigned. A series of conversations about navigating all things midlife, helping you live a meaningful second half. And today, we have a guest with us to talk about midlife and grief. In the last few weeks, we've given you an overview, a kind of perspective on grief that's common in our culture. And today, we are hoping to be able to give you a different perspective, a new, a fresh outlook. We have Emily Vass with us today, and she is a indigenous woman in death work. Her entire outlook on death, grief, and dying is different than you're probably familiar with. Emily believes that by and large, most people are causing themselves more trauma by falling for the myths of grief processing. So while she acknowledges there are few models of healthy grieving out there, she is trying to change that. And through the death positive movements that are rising up, she hopes that we can have better, more honest conversations. And so that's why we are here today. We met Emily in Clubhouse in the room we host each weekday morning and have loved getting to know her. She always brings thoughtful and wise insights and we are looking forward to this conversation with her. So welcome to the show, Emily. Hi, guys. Thanks so much. I am so excited to share and to talk to you guys about this because so few people are willing to talk about it, and we need to. Yes, I agree. There's the, People go into denial or they think it's a taboo subject or something, and you're right. It needs to be talked about so we can work through it. So why don't we open the conversation by having you describe why your work with death and grief is so important to you. Oh, that's great. So I grew up, I tell people, I grew up in death's shadow. It was always there. It was always a part of everyday life. And it wasn't taboo. It really wasn't until I was probably older elementary. And on my mom's side of the family is where I first experienced how taboo it was and how chaotic it was. I had never experienced a chaotic death until I watched my mom's side of the family experience it. And it's really watching my mom and her family members have this unhealthy grief over them, most of them for much of their life, and how it's damaged the living relationships that they've had. So that's kind of my heart's passion is helping people understand, we know it's coming. We can prepare for it. We can talk about it. We're never going to take the heartbreak out of it, but we can take the sting out of it. If we accept, we're all going to be grievers and we're all going to be future corpses. So I definitely have a different language and attitude on the whole thing. So how would you describe that difference between those two sides of your family or the two different experiences that chaotic, unhealthy grief experience and what you would experience in the idea of the healthy, non-taboo kind of side? Sure. So it was really interesting growing up biculturally in Midwest Ohio. (laughs) So that's the first thing to consider is um, my dad's side of the family, who for most intents and purposes were completely colonized, but they still tried to hold on to the few traditions that they they had. But their perception of what death was and its purpose of death, they have a different spirituality. It's not these rigid rules of religion, right? So how they managed everyday life and everyday discord was very different Mm. than my mom, who she came from an Anglo-Saxon Catholic, you know, mixed background. 
And, um, and that was even different than the Amish community we lived within. So I got to really witness <laughs> a wide range from a very early age, you know, because it was interesting because the Amish, very much like the Native Americans, have a, just a very matter of fact, this is what's going to happen. This is how we, we take care of our dead. We love our living into and through their death. Mm-hmm. Where my mom's family build their lives with rituals that they thought were going to bring miracles. They didn't accept the comfort. You know, they didn't have rituals for comfort until the miracle failed them. So it's kind of like I watched them struggle, right? With this false confidence. Like mm. we, I still believe in miracles, but we're all going to die. We can only put this off for so long, Right. And so it was really interesting, especially when I got into grad school as a sociologist and uh, studying psychology. Wow. I'm like, oh, I got a lot of of case study material here just within my own family, (laughs) which I think is why most of us end up in psychology, to be perfectly honest. That's true. Hey, this feels to me like a curiosity thing, but also a respect thing. Would you introduce yourself to us or to our listeners as when you talk about those two different cultures and, and li- it's funny because I grew up in one of the largest Amish settlement areas as well. So I lived around that culture and worked with people and, and we didn't obviously go to school with, with them, but had a lot of contact within the Amish community, especially. But from your background on the indigenous side, on the Native American side, can you give us a little bit of of your history? Just, it feels like, I don't want to ignore that. I want to know where it's from, like what what tribe, what background, like what does that look like in your family? Sure, I appreciate the time to, to address that. So within the indigenous community, often when we are speaking, what we do is we introduce ourselves using our native language, so I would say, Aleto Chimichukma, Aleto Atete. And so what I'm saying, that's in Choctaw language. Um, it's kind of funny because just like we talk about Spanglish, yeah. where you do have Spanish, have English, which I also do a lot. Um, I, I do that with my native tongue of Choctaw. It's some Choctaw and some English. And then it's like my brain kind of goes, blah, <laughs> what's coming out? But so, but that's a Choctaw greeting saying, hello, how are you? And then my name is actually in Lenape. So it's like a Choctaw Lenape mix. Um, <laughs> and so my, my name is Ateete, which translates to little flower. Very cool. And so the interesting thing, um, we also like to introduce ourselves saying, you know, that I'm coming to you today from Creek Muscogee land, which is currently known as Pensacola, Florida. And so we always take time to recognize the land that we're currently on. But my nations are from Oklahoma, and it's the Chahata and Lenape Nation, which their government names are Choctaw and Delaware. So we don't like to use those names because those are the names the government gave us. But that's how most people recognize us. That's awesome. That's fascinating. My grandfather was actually a residential school survivor attending residential school. He was kidnapped from his family at the age of three as the youngest of seven kids and put into residential school. As you may have seen through the news and everything happening within Canada right now, a lot of things going on Mm -hmm. as we're discovering. And especially me being in this field, me being a death worker. It's, it's just an incredibly difficult time for our community 
because we've known this and we've been calling for this, but knowing it and feeling it is very different. Like we knew the numbers were astronomical, but we've never had the proof. Mm. And now the proof is coming forward and Canada's having to face it. And they haven't even started to search the residential schools here in the U.S. But we're, we're going to call for accountability and we're here to help the communities because there's many people like myself that are, you know, we're third generation intergenerational victims of this. And it, it did change our family's course. You know, these residential schools, ultimately, they sent my grandfather to different locations with his trade. And so that's how uh, Full Blood Choctaw ends up in Amish country in Ohio and raising his family with absolutely no connection <laughs> to culture. Yeah. And so it has been reclaiming our culture through my father's generation and mine. So that will be a whole new experience of communal grief, I assume, that you that you will be walking through with your whole community, right? Yes, yes. And you might've noticed in the last month, I've really stepped back from social media because um, there's so many triggers to the intergenerational survivors of this. Because even though you can connect the reasons for your family's hardships and the reasons for your family's dysfunction, it, it reopens it when we're called to educate people who have no idea. But that's that's the importance, right? And so we're, as a community, we're coming together and saying, who who's sitting in the reserves and doing ceremony and healing and who's out teaching? Right. And, and when are we going to switch and when are we going to, how are we going to take care of each other? Because there's important work to educate and to not do it through the anger and emotion, which, which it's going to be then we're going to work through that. But a lot of the leaders were working really hard to gently and because um, it's a sacred space we're in with all of it. I love the wisdom in that. That's one of the reasons I thought this conversation would be so healthy because it is a whole different perspective that I don't think most people are aware of. And so if we can begin to offer that different perspective alongside what the culture says is the way we should approach grief and, and dying and death, then, then people have a choice yeah. and that they can, that they have an educated option. Whereas now that we're, we're not presented with any other options. And so what do you think is the most important thing that those outside of your work without that previous option, what's, what do you think is the most important thing that they need to understand about grief? Oh, time, time. Businesses are giving people three days off when they buried their parent or their spouse. What is that? That's more progressive companies are giving you three days off when your dog dies, which you guys know, I just put down my dog. She's just like a family member. Yeah, but absolutely. You know, with within many cultures across the world, there is a year or more allowed for mourning where you absolutely stop just surviving the day. Right. So I my stepfather died December 3rd. So I entered into a year of mourning where I dramatically changed my work schedule because it would be irresponsible of me to be working, you know, while I'm dealing with my own personal grief and not knowing how and when I'll be triggered, right? I'm, I'm taking a whole year. I'm not sitting vigil. I'm not walking people through their death. I'm taking this year for education, for conversation, because I admit that I'm too vulnerable to be in that sacred space, helping people with looking at their diagnosis 
and their exit window and walking them and their family through the transition of death, right? So like, that's the biggest thing I wish people would understand. So often, even places of worship and clergy, they struggle with this. They get to like the three month mark and they're like, let's focus on things that are good. Let's focus on things that are, no, (laughs) our hearts are shattered. Take time. Mm -hmm. It's okay. Don't tell people you're fine. If you're not fine, stop lying. You're you're causing more problems. (laughs) It's okay to say, I wish I were fine. Yeah. Or I will be fine, but I'm not fine now. (laughs) So I'm choosing good. That's one of the things I like to give people kind of those scripted responses because as a society, we've been told, say what's polite not what's on, right? And I, I challenge that. Yeah. Mm. You can say, I'm choosing good. Another one I like to say is, it's a loaded question, but I love you for asking. It kind of gives them the chance to back out if they need to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see you yes. tomorrow. <laughs> a gracious exit. Yes, but, but it's freeing to let that out. I don't know if we want to go down this road or not, but I think that's so important that we begin to be honest with, where we are at any given time, that we can be truthful about where we are and we can still be polite and truthful at the same time. We just don't have to lie, whether it's about grief or whether it's about mental health. Like I find when I'm really struggling with whether it's um, depression or whatever it is and somebody comes up and they're expecting me to answer fine, developing a scripted language for I'm struggling right now, but I'm, I'm choosing good, as you say, or something, having a scripted answer to that that is both truthful yeah. and not unloading on them, I think would be a helpful skill for all of us to have in, in those kind of situations that we know we're going to experience. Well, and that's exactly it, because we want to choose the people that we come undone with. We want to choose the safe people that we come undone with. But, you know, this is also where like society has taken this middle-aged group and grief and they've turned it into the joke, right? We all love that scene in Fried Green Tomatoes where Tawanda in the car, where it's just like, she's like, I got more insurance than that lady. And she just keeps ramming the car. (laughs) Yes. I don't care. I have insurance. But if we think about people who have lived, you know, and they get into the middle age years, like we stop dealing with the things we don't want to deal with. And as we get older, we have no filter. Like we've lived this life. My thoughts are tumbling. And there's so much freedom in that, right? Yeah. But society has taken that and turned it into a punchline. They're crazy. They're having a midlife crisis. They're delusional. Dementia setting in. What if they're the healthiest they've ever been? Yeah. <laughs> or the most honest, at least the most true. I mean, what if... <laughs> They're more healthy now in their honesty. I can say with 100% that due simply to my age, I am more honest and healthy than I was in my 20s. And not that I'm healthy (laughs) completely there, but I think I am far more willing to say truth than I was in my 20s simply because that whole... um, time factor. And I'm not sure, I haven't really thought this through to know kind of like, what do do I think that comes from? But I definitely think there is something to that. Like the older I get, the just the more willing I am to say what what needs to be said or to say what I think uh, is is hiding in the corner or there is an elephant in the corner of the room or whatever. Well, and that's, that's where I encourage people when we look at the differences in the indigenous community. And when we look at, at colonized 
colonization, defining healthy. Let's just start there. If we can't be controlled, we're unhealthy. <laughs> it's like, no, not really. A lot of the giftings in the indigenous community are giftings and talents and wisdom that's sought out in colonized life is demonized. So, you know, that's something to consider too. So like within the indigenous community, a grieving person is actually sought out for their wisdom and for their guidance mm. because there's no filter there because they're standing on the edge of both spiritual realms. Right. And so they know how precious everything is. They're seeing things more clear than ever. Right. And so within the indigenous community, we definitely, we seek out people who are in their grieving process. And then in colonized communities, it's different. It's just, they're kind of isolated in many ways because it's uncomfortable to have these conversations yeah. or it encouraging them with self-indulgence and justifying it. Like there's no wrong way to grieve. Yes, there's wrong ways to grieve. You know, a whole bottle of Jack. <laughs> that's, that's unhealthy, right? A bad way to grieve. Like, but there's all these myths to like, there's no wrong way to grieve. Have the whole thing of chocolate in your favorite wine. <laughs> You know, and then when when addiction occurs and it pops up, oh, they have no self-control. That brings up this comment of we encourage that attitude, like have, have all the chocolate you want, drink all the wine in dealing with smaller emotional uh, every these everyday losses that we have, whether it's your plans didn't work out the way you wanted them to or somebody canceled your weekend vacation or you have to work and they they generate loss and grief in us these everyday kind of things and we encourage this drown it in a bottle of wine thing and make that funny and then when it comes to large losses the death or loss of a job or whatever those large tra traumatic things are in our life we've already built up how we deal with it in unhealthy ways and then everybody's surprised. They're going to cope with that, with the mechanisms that they've used for the small things too. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's when you look at industrialized societies and things that are based off of capitalism, mourning doesn't fit the bottom line. And so they're training us to get over it quickly. Like if you really sit back and look at it, there's this minimization of it. We should be having whole community support. But if you talk to employees who are grieving, they feel extra disconnected from their employees and their coworkers because they don't know. The coworkers just avoid them because they don't know what to ask or they're afraid of the response, right? Like it is a completely broken system that we need to say, hey, stop. Which one of the blessings coming out of 2020 was for the first time we were all told to be still. It was horrible that we couldn't be with people, that we couldn't be with our loved ones. I never would have imagined I wouldn't have been there to walk my stepdad through his death. I never would have imagined my mother being quarantined alone and experiencing her husband's death with minimal contact from the nurse's station, right? Like that, that's horrifying. And I know many families have experienced worse because they had multiple, right? But it forced all of us to be still for the first time. And it was uncomfortable for everybody. But I think there's going to be a lot of wisdom that comes out of that because we all have the experience that can be done and we can talk about it, right? Like just as a country, we're talking about mental health a lot more since coming out of, out of 2020 and all of that. 
Yeah, touched on it a little bit, but can you go into more detail about how you think grief is different in midlife than in your 20s? Or is it no different? Or is it no different? You know, I'm making a presupposition there. Is, <laughs> is it different in your 20s versus midlife, in your opinion? Well, you know, I think it all comes down to personalities, right? It all comes down to personalities. But I think overwhelmingly, the younger we are, the more optimistic we are. The younger we are, it's, it's not that we get hateful when we get old. We just become more of a realist. <laughs> We're like, the sooner I accept reality, the better. And so I think, you know, that's just my experience and my interpretation of it is um, within my community, we experience grief super young. I mean, by the time I was 16, I was dealing with the funeral director advocating for my family on my own, wow. right? I had dressed a body and washed a body and prepared a body all before I was 19. Wow. But I think it was a part of, of, of our everyday lives as far as we, we knew who was going to do what when this happened. We knew death was coming. But I, when I look at that, it's not that I was desensitized. It's not that I was um, that I was cold to it in any way. It's just I remember the the first death that really impacted me was a nine month old when I was twenty. A friend's child died. That one hit different. Being a baby and my relationship with the baby and my relationship with the mother, right? Like that's kind of where my realist switch flipped. And I think everybody kind of experiences that at a different point in their life. At some point, we get exhausted from the optimism and we realize it's healthier to be realistic and to say, okay, which lens am I really looking at this situation? But as far as overall, I think most of us do. Like we wait till that midlife crisis comes and we're not ready for it. But when we come out of it, we realize it's not that I'm weak because I can't be overwhelmingly optimistic all the time. But I think that's what society tells us, right? This toxic positivity, society feeds us that. So then we make our meltdowns even worse <laughs> when we get to 40 and go, wow, we didn't accomplish what we thought, right? Those goals we had at 20 didn't happen. Yeah, and, th and you need to mourn that. I mean, that is something I think I did during the pandemic. I lost my job in the pandemic. I mean, right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I had to mourn that and realize, well, hey, maybe... <laughs> you know, I've got a different path going now and, and that industry and I had to switch industry and we're doing some new things now, but it was, it was a hard transition. And I did go through mm -hmm. the traditional, you know, stages of grief, anger and, and depression and bargaining. Why can't I get it back? You know, until, and I went through faster than a lot of my friends, I think, until you get to the acceptance stage. And so there's there's a lot of more grief than just the death, but but that's a good point that unfulfilled dreams need to be mourned as well. Well, and there's oh my gosh, we can talk forever about stuff like this, but like special needs parenting, which I'm real big in advocating in that community, grieving for the family you dreamed about, and then the guilt that you have mm -hmm. for for having that because it's like we still love our children. Our life is different and there's a lot of different struggles, but you still kind of have that grief yes. for you thought Disney World was going to be the family best vacation and it was the most sensory hell you ever put yourself through, right? <laughs> or um, different things like me choosing to support my husband in his 24-year career in the Navy. It meant some of my dreams were sacrificed, you know, and at one point I had to stop. Statistically, I should be dead by 43, which means I have a year left. Oh, no, right? Like, and my husband hates when I bring that up. But I'm like, you know, he saw me at like 40. I had back surgery. I was like, I 
have three years left of life expectancy. And I started to panic around that 40 year mark. And he's just like negative Nancy. And I'm like, you know, those fun discussions husbands and wives have. <laughs> I'm like, how are we not on the same page on the big stuff? Right. I don't know. He, he avoids talking about death in all capacities. So being married to me is real fun. Yeah, which means that what you do during the day and how you are in your home life has to take a radical... 180. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, here's what I want to do, Emily. I agree. I think we could talk about this all day. And I have a number of follow-up questions I want to ask still. If you would be willing to come back and do a round two with us... Yeah, of course. I would love to continue this conversation because I think it's really important. And some of the things that we started to get to right at the end, this idea of the things that we grieve at midlife is one of the things that Tim and I want to speak into. And and I also want to talk some more about what can we do? Like, how can we change the narrative in our culture, but how can we prepare ourselves and what can we do at home and in our own lives? And so oh, those are the, some questions I would love to get into you when we come back. Would that be all right with you? Yeah, I think, I think that's great. I'd rather have you come back because we're running out of time. I don't want to try to cram it all into five minutes and not give it, you know, the value that it needs. So we would love if you would come back. Of course. And this is, this is the thing for most people they are like, let's do death just quick so we can check off the box. And you can tell as you get into it, like we have physical death and grief, which is a whole different show than the grief of say, you know, someone who, who like myself is in their forties dealing with dying and aging parents. I kept telling Tim, I'm like, I want this to work because I think that this conversation is going to be so valuable, not only, I mean, just selfishly, not only for us, but for listeners and for anybody that we can get it out to, because I think you're right. We don't talk about it. And there, that makes no sense. It makes no sense to ignore this thing that is so real for all of us. Yes, it's. I tell people, I said, it's a funny connection, but I'm like, in the special needs community, moms talk a lot about digestive health and we're embarrassed, but when we find someone willing to listen, like we share too much <laughs> about our kids and that's kind of how death is. Like people want to talk about it. They don't know who to talk to about it, but when they find that person who's willing to talk about it, it just all comes, right? And then they kind of get taken <laughs> back because society has told us to be reserved, right? Yeah. And they're like, you're going to show people you're true crazy if you keep, you know, <laughs> but it's like, that's, it's emotion. It's natural. It's human. Yeah. And it's, it is important to get them to understand what resources are in their community, how they find their resources nationally, and just normalizing it by having it as a topic on podcasts. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for for the time and for being willing to come back. I forgot that I told myself I was never going to do that because then people feel like, well, I have to say, yeah, she's asking me this on air, but I can cut that out if you want to change your mind. No, it's fine. It's fine. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. All right. Cool. Today's episode is brought to you by the Morning Moments Matters box. Which is a super simple way to take the time that you use to brew your morning coffee and turn it into a ritual that will start your day in a positive frame of mind. Great coffee and a ritual that engages your body, mind, and heart. You can check it out at connectovercoffee.link backslash MMM. 
Thanks so much for joining us. If today's episode has been helpful for you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of someone right now who might benefit from this conversation about grief and share the show with them. That'd be awesome. Until next time, stay caffeinated, y'all.